Section 7 of The Normans in Europe by Arthur Henry Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5 The Capetian Revolution, Part 2. On the death of Louis, the destinies of Gaul were again in the hands of Hugh, although Otto claimed a real but ill defined supremacy. To the influence of these two men we may ascribe the election of Lothar in 954. Otto had supported Louis. It was natural he should support his son. As for Hugh, a kingmaker he had lived and a kingmaker he wished to die. And Lothar, at the age of thirteen, like his father before him, ascended the throne under the protection of this busy, intriguing prince. Hugh, once more the guardian of his king, hastened to turn the position to his own advantage. Gaining from Lothar a grant of the Duchy of Aquitaine, he embroiled the king in a war with the princes of that country. But their combined forces were checked before Poitiers. The war was ended, and shortly after, Hugh's successful, restless, intriguing life was brought to a close in 956. Unwilling or unable to assume the crown himself, he had paved the way for his son, and this in two ways. The constant intrigues of his earlier life had tended to weaken the power of the royal line, and the final alliance made with Normandy eventually served to place his son upon the throne. Left a minor at the age of thirteen, Hugh Capet fell by the will of his father under the guardianship of Richard the Fearless, the Norman Duke, and the alliance was cemented in 960 by the consummation of the marriage between Emma and Richard, who renewed his homage to his ward. The relations between Paris and Laon remained the same, Hugh doing homage to young Lothair. Thus the destinies of Laon and Paris were in the hands of two boys of almost equal ages, the Caroling leaning more and more on the staff of Germany, and the Frenchman on that of Normandy. So things remained, with the exception of one short war between Lothair and Richard, until the death of Otto I in 973. By that event, the last hope for the Caroling line was extinguished. Lothair foolishly quarreled with his successor, Otto II, about the possession of Lotharingia, and the war which ensued in 978 was only ended by the death of the two rivals within three years of each other. Thus, by the imprudence of Lothair, the powerful German house was alienated at the moment when its aid was most needed. Once more the caroling line was chosen, and Louis, the son of Lothair, quietly succeeded as Louis V, 986 to 987, under the protection of young Duke Hugh. The one act of his reign was to alienate the powerful Archbishop of Reims, Aldobero, whose interests were thus transferred to Paris. At Louis V's death in 987, the crown was again referred to the will of the princes. The only two possible competitors were Charles of Lorraine, the uncle of the late king, and Hugh Capet. Of these, Charles had made himself unpopular by accepting part of Lotharingia as a fief of the empire, 
and had in some sort been already passed over when not elected to share the kingdom with Lothair, according to the usual custom. Now that Lotharingia was definitely a fief of the empire, Laon was evidently not the place for the capital of a French kingdom, nor the German-speaking Charles the person to be king over a French-speaking people. Indeed, when we review the past, we are tempted to wonder that the caroling line had not long ere this been abandoned, not that it was abandoned now. But if not the caroling line, who had better claims than Hugh? His family had already given two kings to Gaul, Eude, 887 to 893, Robert, 922 to 923. His father's life had been one long preparation for the change, and had he willed, probably it would have occurred before. Now at least there could be no doubt. Hugh Capet could depend upon the suffrages of Burgundy, which was in the hands of his brother Eude, of the Metropolitan Archbishop of Reims, lately estranged from Louis, and above all, of Richard the Norman Duke, who had private as well as public wrongs to avenge. There were some, indeed, who favoured Charles, but of these, Aquitaine was too little connected with France to make its influence felt, and Vermontois was no longer powerful. The only influential supporters of Charles were the Archbishop of Sens and Baldwin of Flanders. When, therefore, the Archbishop of Reims, asserting the elective character of the crown, put the question to the vote, the election of Hugh Capet was carried by acclamation in 987. The party of Charles, not strong enough to gain his election, took up arms in his behalf. Charles displayed the activity common to his race and for two years, from 987 to 989, carried on the struggle with considerable success. But fortune had declared against the Carolings, and now, overwhelmed their last representative. Betrayed by the treachery of the Bishop of Laon, whose most sacred promise he had trusted, he and his city were handed over to Hugh, Laon ceased forever to be a capital, and Charles remained a prisoner till his death in 1001. The revolution which was thus consummated was one of the utmost importance to France and to Europe. Its importance, however, did not lie in the election of Hugh Capet, but in the permanence of his dynasty. The Carolings had been overthrown, and the third dynasty established by a complication of fraud, treachery, and misfortune, not by conscious adherence to any acknowledged principle. The chief actors were no doubt entirely ignorant of the important part they were playing in the history of their country. As far as they were concerned, it was little more than one phase of the petty struggles which had been for years distracting Gaul. Their motives, as before, were utterly selfish and temporary. Hugh Capet was king, as Eudes, his great-uncle, and Robert, his grandfather, had been before him. But no one could tell whether his power would be more lasting than theirs. Certainly no one saw the hidden forces at work which were to establish his family firmly upon the throne, for full eight hundred years. The princes, therefore, were unconscious agents in this eventful change. For its consummation, we must look to other causes. 
in the accession or rather in the permanence of the capetian dynasty we see the rebound from the principles upon which charles the great had founded his empire a reaction had long been operating to break up that empire but it is not till now that its effect is thoroughly worked out as far as france is concerned the empire had been founded upon a false attempt at unity against which nature herself cried out and which had no real social or internal basis it was a violation of all geographical boundaries not to be lightly violated at least in early times the people he thus tried to unite had absolutely no common basis of nationality no common interests or language or social customs none of the bonds necessary to form a united state it was an empire founded upon conquest not upon the wishes of the people an attempt to force a teutonic government on romanized gaul hence it was a purely personal rule nor was this all the ideas to which it looked for strength were too complex for an early state of society charles had attempted to revive the old imperial ideas of rome by the infusion of younger teutonic ones the emperor of rome in virtue of being head of the senate had been looked upon as the representative of the people in all things he was high priest as well as emperor when christianity was made the state religion by constantine this position of high priest was continued under a christian form charles added to this the elective character of the german king and the close connection with the church based on such principles as these the empire was ill-suited to the temper of the times and as soon as charles's master hand was removed the disruptive forces set to work and broke it up the attempt to form a christian empire was reproduced on a more modest but firmer basis by the holy roman empire of otto the first in nine sixty two in gaul the same agencies began to move and after a long struggle triumphed in the accession of hugh capet the natural limits of modern france are the basins of the rhone the somme the seine the loire and the garonne which form a network over the whole of france now completed by her system of canals the natural capital must be found somewhere in the centre orleans or lyon or rouen might dispute the claim with paris but not laon lying as it did at the eastern extremity on no large navigable river close to the german frontier the fictitious unity achieved by charles was gradually replaced by a more real though less ambitious one a unity defined by natural boundaries and knit together by the ties of common interest and a common language the teutonic element had never really leavened gaul its permanent influence is bounded by an imaginary line drawn from cherbourg to marseilles west of that fully half of france it did not reach at all and even east of it the romance element soon cast off the teutonic superstructure broke off all connection with germany and looked for a national dynasty to represent its national features of all the ideas upon which the empire of charles was based one alone the elective character of its king it retained and that a common one to european nations 
feudalism arose to complete the idea of French royalty and to fix it. The dominion of Charles was a personal one. Against this in France, as elsewhere, was formed the idea of territorial dominion. Earlier kings had been kings of the East and West Franks. Hugh Capet was the first king of France. Thus, in every way, the dominion of the Capets was the negation of the principle upon which the empire had been based, and this at once explains their weakness and their strength. Their power was by no means a personal one. They owed their rise to the centrifugal tendencies before which the empire had fallen. At their accession, royalty was at its lowest ebb. Their own domains were no doubt more extensive than those of the later Carolings. They consisted of Picardy, part of Champagne, the city and county of Paris, Orléans, and Chartres, a narrow strip running north and south, equally divided by the river Seine. But their power over the rest of France was probably less. South of the Loire their existence was hardly recognized, and north of it Lotharingia had been finally given up to Germany. The connection with Flanders was gradually weakened. The Duke of Normandy, holding the very keys of their dominions and shutting them out completely from the seaboard, threatened to overshadow them, while their power was further circumscribed by some hundred sovereign states, absolute within their own dominions, and owing a nominal allegiance to their overlord at Paris, which was often exchanged for an attitude of open defiance. Whatever view we take of the character of the earlier Capetian kings, whether with some we consider them as priest-ridden weaklings, or with others declare them to be men of considerable ability and activity, we cannot but wonder how they retained the throne. They had lost the presumptive title of long possession, so valuable in earlier times. Their accession was certainly accompanied by increased power among the feudatories, with whom they were long engaged in deadly strife. Unconscious of the subtle forces which were supporting them, their lives were spent in petty struggles, until, with Louis VI, 1108 to 1137, the monarchy awoke to find that France had grown meanwhile and firmly fixed them on the throne. We have dwelt upon the important struggle which ended in the final triumph of Paris because the Norman dukes had been the primary agents in the revolution and because future Norman history is deeply influenced by it. Since the days of Rollo, Norman history had formed an unbroken thread in the tissue of the history of France. As long as the Norman dukes remained true to the Carolings, they were safe, but when Richard the Fearless finally sided with Hugh of Paris, their death knell was sounded, and it was only a question of time as to the exact moment when the events should be consummated. Thus it was the Normans who made Gaul France, and Paris owes her position as capital of modern France above all to their agency. The effect on Normandy, on the other hand, is fully as great. Till now the Normans had been hardly accepted as Christian brethren by their neighbors. They were hated while they were feared and branded with the name of pirates. Henceforth they gain a recognized and important position as Frenchmen. 
in Normandy the best French qualities appear. The vivacity, the impulsiveness, the cleverness of the Romanized Celt seem to have gained strength from the courage, the high spirit of independence, the perseverance, the chivalry of the Scandinavians. Nowhere else is the Scandinavian influence so great. Nowhere else is it so permanent. Elsewhere they become rapidly lost amid the surrounding nationality and lose their predominance. In Normandy, the union of the Scandinavian nobles with the French lower classes produces a famous and peculiar type of men, the best of the French, the conquerors and wise kings of Sicily, the powerful conquerors and organizers of England, the flower of chivalry, and the heroes of the Crusades. Here the Langdui assumes its greatest polish. Here rise the first of North French poets. Here the finest of the early French cathedrals are built. Lastly, the relations between Normandy and Paris, inaugurated by the revolution which we have been considering, deeply affected the future history of Normandy as well as that of France. Richard II had commended himself to Hugh, the great Duke of Paris. That duchy had now grown into a kingdom. The vassalage continued, but it was due rather to Hugh Capet as Duke than as King of France, and while the Capetian kings in later days ill-requited the assistance they had received from their Norman vassals, the Normans were ever ready to claim their independence and reduce their vassalage to the narrowest limits. With this Capetian revolution, in which Richard the Fearless had borne so prominent a part, his public life ended, and the remaining years of his eventful reign were spent in quiet at Rouen. Nothing disturbed the internal peace of the duchy, if we accept a short war with England in 991. This is said to have been caused by the shelter offered by Richard to the Danes, who under Swagen, king of Denmark, and son of Harald Bluetooth, were again beginning to trouble England and entering on that political conquest which culminated in the establishment of Canute upon the English throne. The war was soon put an end to through the mediation of the Pope, and is important only as forming the first instance in which the Norman dukes were brought into direct connection with the English kings. Richard's marriage with Emma had been unfruitful, and his children by Genora, a woman of unknown lineage, were looked upon as illegitimate by the church, since he had been married to her after the Danish fashion. He now married her according to Danish rites, and by the doctrine of the church his children became legitimized. Of these, Richard succeeded him, and his two daughters subsequently married Ethelred the Unready of England and Geoffrey of Brittany. Thus, having settled the question of succession, Richard's work was done. His reign had been a long and troubled one. Succeeding at the age of ten to his dukedom, suddenly bereaved of its master by a violent death, and threatened by foes and dangers, he had successfully weathered the crisis, established the Norman family on the soil, and taken the leading part in the change of dynasty which was so deeply to color the future history of his race. He had outlived all his reigning contemporaries, and seen a new generation arise, and yet, when his long reign of fifty-three years was closed in 996, he was only sixty-three.
his character is marked by all his father's best qualities without his weaknesses judged by the standard of today the morality of his private life would not stand the test but no act of public dishonesty or faithlessness is recorded against him and his great abilities softened by urbanity and courtesy gained him the love and esteem of his people within the duchy his reign is one of quiet seed time and growth norman nobility began to arise there are few noble houses whose lineage we can trace earlier than his reign the feudalizing process was advancing and acquiring definite form nor were there wanting signs of nascent prosperity among the middle classes the normans took readily to trade and gladly welcomed the industrious fleming whose fame as a manufacturer was already known the position of the burghers was apparently a solid one annual mercantile fairs existed and falaise was already noted for its tanneries and woolen manufactures the latter part of richard's reign was spent in organizing his dukedom issuing the first coinage of the norman mint and in restoring fecon and other monastic establishments which had been suffered to fall into decay during the troubled times which had preceded in every way the normandy of later times was arising and if rollo is to be considered the first founder of the power of danish normandy richard the last of the danish the first of the french norman dukes is the second founder of the dukedom End of section seven